introduce myself. I am Perry Gibbons, the CEO and founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership. And we are based, I'm based here in Menlo Park, California, which if you haven't been paying attention, we've been getting a lot of smoke and fire and, and so on. And, and I know I have relatives um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, mm -hmm. as well as New Orleans. So I'm keeping a close eye on uh, Laura, the hurricane there, although it sounds like at least Baton Rouge is okay. So I was very nervous there because I have an elderly aunt who lives there. Um, and uh, we are in the middle of a pandemic. But in the middle of this pandemic, we have all kinds of things going on related to race and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And somebody, uh, we, I have a list of the questions you guys have all sent in. And uh, one of the questions somebody asked is, what is DEI? Well, diversity, equity, and inclusion basically um, is an approach that allows us to make sure that historically underrepresented minorities, which I hate to use the word minorities, but, um, and I uh, are, are have access, so in the context of higher ed, have access to higher ed, have the, you know, the appropriate um, support once they're in an institution um, that we're hiring faculty uh, and avoiding bias. I mean, there's so many different aspects of it and that, those are just a few. And I, I'm gonna, as our panelists talk about um, you know, what's going on, I hope that they will incorporate some of that into uh, you know, they're defining what they how they define uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, in any case, um, I am uh, going to just do a really quick discussion. We're going to each take about five minutes because we have a lot of questions from all of you, and I have them in a PowerPoint so that we can post all those questions. But um, I just want to talk about an incident that happened here in Santa Clara, Santa Clara University where there was a black faculty member, her brother was you know, coming to the visit for the first time since uh, she had, you know, since the, shut, you know, the shutdown. And so he had come and you know, spent the night, then the next morning, Saturday morning, he went out to do some work in, on the campus. And um, you know, it was uh, a, a tough situation because all of a sudden he's you know, got a police or campus security asking him to leave and they actually followed him to his house, uh, to her house, and uh, you know, was, were questioning whether she actually uh, lived there. They made her show her ID. It was, you know, anyway, the link is in the chat if you want to just check out that article. So, you know, it was just very traumatic for, you know, the brother and the sister. But these are the kinds of things, you know, and I was posting about it and I said, you know, every campus, well, not just every campus, we should all be focusing on, you know, are we, how are we approaching these situations? I mean, if you're a leader in higher ed, are you talking to your campus security, making sure that they know how to deal with these issues? I mean, the sad thing, truth is Santa Clara University only, according to this article, only has seven black faculty out of 564 full-time faculty, seven. And um, on top of that, you know, they've only got 3% black students. And so, you know, they need to be extremely sensitive. And, you know, to be fair, the president did respond quickly. Um, he's talking about taking action, but, you know, these things keep happening. And this is just the latest in a series, you know, I think for those of us who have been dealing with these topics, it's just frustrating and, you know, causes anxiety and, you know, on top of the pandemic and, you know, James Moore was just telling us, you know, that they, you know, they're on, they're on campus <laughs> and, you know, there's all these issues that are swirling around. 
And, um, you know, but it, it's heartening to see that, you know, last night um, we saw that the NBA, um, whether you want to call it a boycott or a strike, uh, we've got that happening. We've got um, you know, the, the W, you know, lots of sports figures, WNBA, you know, Major League Baseball, tennis, uh, you know, all across the spectrum. And so I do think we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we're at an inflection point where, where people will start paying attention to these issues. And so I want to give each of our panelists just five minutes to, to talk about what they do and how they're involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and then we'll jump into the questions after we get through that. So uh, Kim, why don't you start? Well, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Kim Churches. I'm the CEO of AAUW, which is the American Association of University Women. Uh, we are based in, and founded um, really out of the suffrage movement in the late 1800s when women um, simply couldn't gain access to pursue their higher educational dreams. And so that's, that's our baseline of trying to ensure that all women have an opportunity to pursue higher education, whether just for a degree or to stay in, acad in, the, in the academy. Um, but we've really expanded that work, as you can imagine, over about 140 years. So our work is mission-based and, and values-based around education and training. That and training is really about workforce development and ensuring almost kind of like the new Rosie the Riveter of how we're ensuring that women also have access to high-paying jobs that don't require uh, a four-year degree or beyond or even a two-year degree. Um, in addition to education and training, uh, a big bulk of our work is around economic security. So that is that, you know, we, a lot of us have heard about the gender pay gap. It's worse than the gender pay gap because the student loan debt, um, which in this nation uh, is $1.54 trillion, even as women earn today. So fast forward from 1881 when we were founded to 2020 women out earn associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees, uh, master's degrees, doctoral degrees, medical degrees, and law degrees, more so than men. We're half the population, but we have over 50% in every one of those categories, yet we disproportionately carry far more of the student loan debt in this country. And particularly for Black women and Latina women, it's all the worse. So if you start off with student loan debt, then you go and enter the workforce, whether again, you stay in nonprofits, educational institutions, higher ed, or move into the private sector, within one year of attaining your degree, you already are faced with about a 26% pay gap, um, meaning that the average woman is earning uh, about a quarter less than what the average male is earning one year past that degree. So a lot of our work is on uh, fair and equitable pay, based on experience and education, but also how that compounds over time all the way through to retirement and death. Um, we also spend a lot of time on the leadership gap, something Terry and I um, have talked about, because frankly, um, as you were just giving the statistics for Santa Clara, and a lot of us are shaking our heads at this, we see this every day. And, and the reality is even as um, you know, this nation is now, half of our population is millennial, Generation Z and post-Generation Z, and the other half are baby boomers and, uh, and uh, Gen Xers like me, uh, you know, our demography has changed so greatly, yet if you cannot see it, you cannot be it. And I really hope we, we can talk a little bit about this because even as we, we are seeing and applauding when we see more women going into government, uh, you know, going into the C-suite of Fortune 500, or taking on extraordinary roles in Ivy Leagues to CTEs, 
we have a long, long way to go because far too often uh, it's one and done and we don't have enough of that to actually match where the demography is today. So we as an organization today are working to advance DEI uh, really through research. We start, we're, even though I'm based here in Washington, D.C., Terry, there are some of us that actually still believe in facts. And so we start with a baseline of facts and analyze the data to really put forward the right policies, practices, and programs that can ensure that we are advancing equity. And when I'm talking about advancing equity, I'm meaning gender and racial equity and justice in every part of our society. And so I'll pause there to, to make sure James has some time to share all of the good work he's doing right now. Oh, well, thank you, Terry. Thank you, Kim. It's such an honor to be on a panel with you all. Uh, I am the Vice Provost for Diversity and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer at Ohio State University. Uh, our Office of Diversity and Inclusion is one of the largest, most comprehensive, and oldest office of its kind in the United States. Uh, we just turned 50 on May 25th. And like many offices like ours, they were founded based on the upheaval of the times. Uh, the university didn't do the right thing. Like most places, we have demands. People are leery of the institution because they weren't responsive. And when people are not responsive, you see uh, basketball players cancel a playoff game. You see baseball players cancel games. You see women's basketball. So we're at that threshold, uh, at that tipping point, if you will, that people won't change and they don't want to hear excuses for the change. And so our office was evolved based on some of the, the stimulus of our office started in 1968 when we had black students who did a sit-in in our president president's building, which we what we refer to as Bricker Hall. And uh, they called the National Guard. And this was right before the Kent State Massacre. I think that was in 1970. Uh, but most people don't know similar uh, parallel uh, outcomes uh, were at Ohio State. Perhaps not the killing, but our students, they called the National Guard. They were arrested. And if all the students who got arrested, if they had been found guilty, they would have had over 300 years in prison. Uh, but thank goodness they didn't. And so two years ago, those students came back and um, the, began the healing process. So they couldn't believe how Ohio State, in their mind, had made a big transition, transformation from what it was in 1968. In fact, I quote, one of the former students said, we're more surprised at the time we had an African-American president at the university he stated that I'm more surprised that Ohio State has a black president than at the time, than the United States of America having President Obama being the president. So that is, um, you know, that is from the perspective of one who had an experience at Ohio State. But let me just say, as an institution, we're probably not as good as we what we think we are, but we're probably not as bad either. We were graduating black folk in the late 1890s when in the South, where I'm from in South Carolina, they refused to get allow African-Americans to go to schools at, uh, at, at their public institutions. Rather than integrate our public institutions, those states would send money, pay for those students to go to school at Ohio State, University of Minnesota, University of Iowa, and Big Ten schools. But 
uh, but we were far far from being perfect because we can think of a, probably arguably the greatest Olympian ever, Jesse Owens, uh, alum of Ohio State. He went to Ohio State, but he couldn't live on campus. So his sense of dignity was minimized at the institution. He was arguably the most powerful, most influential person in the world. Uh, literally put a dagger in eugenics and Hitler's ideology around eugenics. But we have come a long way and we have a long way to go. Uh, we arguably have the, one of the largest diversity scholarship programs in the country where we have about 1,500 students. But literally, the students reflect everybody that we have on this Zoom call, first generation to sixth generation, African-American, white, black, multiracial, uh, LGBTQ, uh, plus, uh, atheist, Christian, Muslim. It's literally a United Nations. So what is my charge from how I interpret it? In the simplest form, I'm probably the only one. I have not heard anyone stated this yet, but I, I, I stand to be corrected. I'm probably the only one who stated that I'm working to put myself out of a job. Uh, but we're not there as an institution, as a society, but that is what I'm working towards. Um, at the institution, uh, our office was initially founded as the Office of Minority Affairs. Uh, maybe about six years ago, we went through a transformation and we wanted to use, we thought, the, the leaders thought the name was antiquated and we changed our name to the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, which is really probably more reflective of the various uh, affinity groups that we uh, impact. One of the things about Ohio State that makes us a little different than many large public universities um, I'm from South Carolina, and University of South Carolina is the flagship, and Clemson is the land grant. Well, we're both. I went to Virginia Tech to get my PhD. Virginia Tech is the land grant. UVA is the flagship. It's, it hurts me to say that, but it's deemed as the flagship. And so at Ohio State, we're both. And there's always a tension between flagship and land grant. Who should be allowed to come to the institution? Uh, are we selective or are we gonna live up to our land grant mission? And with that narrative is always tension. And, in, and oftentimes uh, there are bystanders uh, of that tension. Um, consequentially, there are groups that are greatly impacted. Being in Ohio, I will close, um, we have 15, uh, urban areas as defined by the state, and we have about, we, we have eight urban areas as defined by, um, by the federal government. Uh, most of our persons of color live in the urban centers where you find heightened level of vulnerability and poverty, and where urban education is a consequence of the urban ecosystem. So, uh, in my office, we have arguably one of the most comprehensive and largest pipeline program in the country that we literally guaranteed admissions to the students if they maintain, even if they score zero on ACT. Of course, they don't score zero on the ACT. And what makes me proud of my the, the work that I'm able to participate in is that long before we start talking about access and affordability, Ohio State, we were talking about it a long time ago, 
and we've graduated over a thousand first gen low income from the inner cities. Um, and of course, there are other universities have it, but they're not situated in the same cities. And oftentimes they're funded by private dollars. Ours is general, fund, general funds uh, supplemented with programmatic things that I rate funds we raise from corporate and donors. And uh, that's what makes Ohio State an exciting place. And I believe what I would say, in spite of what is going on, if you're a chief diversity officer, certainly we're saddened by that some people have to be the consequence for the heightened level of consciousness. But for a chief diversity officer, this is the only time, this is what, the moment we've been waiting for, right? Because we've been talking to ourselves, we're in big lecture halls where the rooms are hollow, where our voices echo back at us. And so uh, I say I'm more hopeful than I ever been. That's wonderful, James. Um, I, that's what I was saying at the beginning for, and for those who joined late, uh, apologies for the uh, glitch at the beginning, so you could join us. But um, yeah, I, I think that's what's really exciting and, and why we want, one of the reasons why we wanted to have this panel is because we're seeing this change happening. I mean, people are actually talking about structural racism. I mean, a year ago, if I asked you what structural racism was, you, you wouldn't know it. And, and people are actually talking about it in the context of George Floyd. And, the, you know, I mean, there's been so many incidents. I don't want to start going down the lists, but... Um, I think it's important to understand that what's I think what's shifting now is that it's you know it's going beyond the chief diversity officers you know leaders are starting to um, actually step up and at least you know at a minimum make statements and that that leads me to our first question you know we've seen almost every institution in the country has come out with a statement saying they support Black Lives Matter. Um, but how can university administrations move from talk to action? Um, James, I'm gonna let you start with that one. Well, we're, we're attempting, and like I said, uh, we were one of the early universities that uh, tried to get ahead of this. I'm not saying we were the first, but we tried to get ahead, it, ahead of it and align our role, the, the role that we can play within the parameters of a great public university. And some of the things that we did before our, our former president left to go to University of California, <clears throat> uh, he put a million dollars into seed grants for research, not to just mitigate racism, but to eliminate racism. For us, we just celebrated 150 years in our university. So when you talk about structurals that is long standing, and, and how we were founded. It's very difficult to penetrate those kind of structures. And But one of the things I will say, we're a great installation with some of the greatest minds in the world. Uh, if you ask an engineer to solve an irrigation problem, uh, they'll solve it. Well, we need some of the best social and behavioral scientists to come together mm -hmm. in a collective framework, using a collective framework to solve one of the great mysteries in our country. Uh, racism and racial mm -hmm. inequities. So that's one thing. The second thing is we put a task force together. And I know everybody gets fatigued with task forces, but in our university history, we've never talked about racism. In fact, people now can utter it from their tongues. Uh, structural racism, as, as Terry indicated. And so this task force, the goal of it is, is to think about 
uh, it's not a report, it's a set of actionable items that we will present to the president that she can act on immediately. And we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about uh, how can we make the university more ideal for everyone mm -hmm. rather than the few. Uh, currently, we have an institution that is not ideal for everyone. Something that you indicated, that Kim indicated about salaries. And we are going to use a framework around the five Ps, which is a framework that is often utilized within my discipline uh, in counseling, and it's called invitational counseling. The first P is people, faculty. And we have a variety of types of faculty beyond tenure track, students, undergraduate, graduate, professional students, transfer, staff, we have a range of different staff, postdocs, um, administrators, alumni, as well as our community partners. We want to hear from all of them and we want to critically analyze data uh, to shatter myths and share realities of things that we can do. So as policies, we have policies that sometimes advantage some groups and disadvantage others. I don't know what the policies are. I'm open to, but that's part of the task force. The processes, how many processes, when we say diversity inclusion, we have to go through a whole nother process that it fatigue us. So we want to begin to understand what processes that we're utilizing that sometimes disadvantage some and advantage others. The other one, the places, we got some colleges Diversity, they just now learn how to spell diversity because they ain't never been diverse colleges. And we all use the same antiquated a narrative. We just can't find them. You give me the money, I can find them. <laughs> yep. The next thing is programs. We have some programs, they're boutiques, they could be scaled and they can have greater impact. And some, we need to sunset some of these programs that people love and they haven't impacted anyone. So the we added two more P's positions who get the positions when you look around where are they are they on the board do we have diversity on the board do we have them at the cabinet where where, where do we see it uh is we're going to shatter the myths and share the reality and the last thing is what we would say pay uh there are gaps in pay we don't have to go far uh we we can just look in our own university we don't have to read a, a scientific journal article to hear about it this is been a mainstay in America. We know women make less than men when they have more education, more attainment. Hey, we got to speak truth, but we're going to allow, we're not, but most importantly, to get to this, you look at the data, but you have to engage the community. And we got to hear the pains, the sorrows, uh, the shortcomings of the institution. And some people are going to get hypersensitive because they think you're going to be targeting them because they maintain the status quo that has prevented us from making the kind of leap. So the president has given this group full autonomy to look under every rock to commission anyone to see how we can raise the tide within our beloved Ohio State University. Those two things. And the medical school has began an anti-racism campaign. I, I must say, I've never seen a medical school of this type how aggressive and, and outgoing, uh, but, but we have plans. The universities are never, there's never a lack of plans at universities. It's usually a lack of will to see it through. What we're trying to do in this process is to help leaders understand 
naturally they want to dump everything on a task force, but we have to help leaders realize that they have the tools and the autonomy to make decisions because that's why they were hired. Uh, so we have began this process and we're hoping, at least what I'm pitching to the university, that Ohio State can become the premier institution of solving complex problems around racism and racial inequities. And we believe that it won't be just people of color who will be attracted to our institution. We believe that all walks of life would be attracted to an institution that's trying to solve social complexity that has been a part, is just as American as, you know, uh, us calling ourselves Americans. So those are some initial things that we're doing. Not perfect, not, not, um, um, I'm sure there are other things, but, but I think what universities make the mistake, they begin to try to do something outside of their scope. Mm -hmm. It's better to stay within your scope and within your academic mission. But I believe that if we can pull off this great masterpiece, potentially a Picasso, uh, we can position ourselves to be one of the great, uh, uh, the world's land grant to solve complex problems around race. Great, and I'm just going to remind folks to check the chat because if you if you aren't looking at the chat, there's lots of stuff going in there. Um, and I, I am asking folks uh, to turn off their video just so I, I don't want to be rude, but um, just to save uh, bandwidth. So, uh, Kim, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I'd love to add to that and loved your uh, comments, James. You know, uh, for me, uh, DEI efforts in every single regard and the language, you know, grammar, just like the English language changes over time, the way we've talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion continues to change and evolve um, as our society grows and changes. But I think first and foremost, everybody has a plan, exactly as James said, to the point of we're, you know, blowing dust off of them because words are pretty on paper and that's very much in keeping um, with academic institutions in, in all the best intended ways. But without making transparency uh, upfront, without making bold long-term commitments that you hold yourselves accountable for, without ensuring that metrics are in place at every single layer of every single block, whether we're talking about faculty, um, adjuncts, staff, uh, students, uh, you know, the board, the advisory boards, etc. Nothing will change. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it just becomes hashtag social media and another marketing brochure. And I don't think anybody in higher education wants to see that anymore. To James's optimism, I share it earlier as well. I've never felt so heartened. Um, and I just want to make sure this moment turns to a real movement. But, you know, again, I would say some of the things that can be done, we've done some of these things internally. I think, you know, we have a progressive mission, yet a lot of us still kind of go by old SHRM, Society of Human Resource Management guidelines of like the paradigms of the workplace of the 20th century, like a Norman Rockwell print. I mean, give me a break. That is not, you know, the United States of America today in higher education. And so we need to ensure you know, that the, the structures, the confines of how we're working in academe match where we are as a people today. So for example, you know, some things that we can be doing here around transparency, what do I mean by that? 
hiring and promotion practices, making them highly transparent to people of how you are. More than just what's written in an employee handbook or a manager's handbook, but how are you training? How are you holding people accountable? Uh, you know, one of the things I saw in both public universities and private ones uh, when I was in academe was the search committees look great. I was typically on one because I was a senior woman in leadership. Uh, and so I could be that good token uh, white woman voice on a, on a search. Um, but you would see an incredibly diverse uh, group of true talent coming for any job, whether you were looking at a faculty position, uh, department chair, what have you. Yet for some reason, we still see in academe far too often that a white guy named John, you know, goes into those roles at the end of the day. So the process looks good because we've gone through, but we haven't held ourselves accountable as to what we want to see from top down, bottom up, and side to side in terms of leadership. I think, um, you know, more audits. I think James touched on this. Um, you know, we already know we don't need the scientific research to know that we've got giant pay and leadership gaps for people of color and, and women, uh, you know, in academe and in every single sector of our society. It's not certainly not uh, in any way wagging a finger at higher ed. This is systemic. But if we are auditing our practices much more regularly, you know, you can get to, it's funny, I worked, I'll give you one example. I worked with Starbucks on um, their pay parity work that they were working on in the U.S., well, the second you achieve pay parity, it can dive off the deep end the next day if you're not keeping that level of accountability. And that's why I say metrics are important here. So, you know, one other good example of this is everybody has a job description and everybody has performance evaluations. Everyone's favorite time of year, performance evaluation time. But too often, we're only evaluating people just on their JD rather than also in how they are acting out their values and acting out the priorities around DEI in their work every day. And should we not be holding the same level of accountability beyond what work product you're producing, but the sort of positive intent, mutual respect environment that can make up the demography we represent today, rather than something out of a sepia tone picture from the 1900s or 20th century. Um, there's a couple other things that I would say that are really good ways that um, higher ed can, can really do this. Supporting stronger mentorship and sponsorship programs. Mm -hmm. We know, particularly for women of color, uh, they do not have enough sponsors, um, people that are advocating when they're not in the room, and they certainly don't have a diverse group of mentors um, that are helping them to move forward in education or in their careers. Um, we absolutely in academe need to be improving parental leave and flex, um, flex schedules. We're seeing that play out right now. I mean, look, COVID-19 has just exacerbated and put a giant spotlight on all of the inequities this nation has been facing. We, we knew this already, but it's like our eyes are open, the rose-colored glasses are off um, completely. And so for me, you know, this is about um, policy versus practice. Um, and ensuring that we're holding people accountable at every single level, whether you're an incoming intern on up the food chain. And it has to start from the top. Uh, it has to start with the board, with the fiduciary board, and with the senior le uh, leadership at every institution. And then that accountability has to go to every school, every dean, every department chair, and so forth. It's the only path forward, really, um, to ensuring we're moving forward. And, and lastly, I'm going to say, I think we need to be brave and we need to be bold in being okay with not being perfect at this and knowing that the road is going to be bumpy, filled with potholes and rocks and issues along the way. But being more transparent of saying, you know, we saw this in the private sector where you see 
you know, Citigroup came out and said, you know, this, we're kind of lousy at this right now. We know we have uh, a pay gap. We know we have a leadership gap. We know we don't have enough people of color. Here's where we are right now. And here's our plan for the next three years. That level of honesty and transparency doesn't just ensure that they're keeping um, clients and employees. It actually plays into higher ed as well. And I think rather than um, hiding it in, in opacity is really putting it out there in the sunshine. Sunshine disinfects our white sheets, um, but it also helps to make sure we're all on the on the same page. Oh, thanks, Kim. I actually wore my, uh, you can't see it, but uh, here, let me see if I can pull down a little. But I'm wearing my truth shirt today from South Africa. Um, when I was in South Africa, I visited all, all the different sites and I got this it, truth and it's about truth and transparency. And so I, I, I want to break in here a little bit because one of the questions is, will there be continued training or support for those that want to be a part of the promotion of DEI and this change for the future of youth? And absolutely. I mean, we're all working on these issues, but I, I have to tout my own book. I'm working on a book called uh, Radical Empathy, Bridge, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides. And it's, it's basically, a, I call it Radical Empathy because we have to go beyond just empathy. You know, it's one thing to, Michelle Obama, I was so excited she said this at the DNC, is, you know, she's thinking a lot about empathy, but it's not just about empathy, it's about taking action. And so if you're interested, it's actually already available for pre-order on Amazon. But if you email me, I will gladly send you the PDF. I'm just finalizing the, the last version of it. It's not copy edited yet, but, um, and I raised that because we're actually going to be doing a, a set of workshops around, uh, you know, this idea of bridging divides and, you know, all the workshop, you know, there's a lot of people, consultants, workshops, et cetera, and that's, that's important too. But what our workshop is about is really doing the work yourself. And I had to do that work for me, I set myself before I could say, okay, now we can, you know, I can help other people. Um, so that's really what my book is about is, you know, kind of, my willingness to be vulnerable and, and you know, taking you on my path to understanding you know, what it really means to have empathy and then taking action. And um, you know, it, I think if we uh, look at it from that perspective and tell our leadership, you need to go on this journey, regardless of your background, we all need to go on this journey. Um, somebody's asking, you know, what if, what do you do if your leadership doesn't seem to want to change? Well, you know, I think, and you know, it takes making demands, making concrete demands, and that's what we're seeing coming out of the NBA right now, right? They're making concrete demands, but um, you know, I think that it's also showing the the strength, you know, pulling together the people on your campus who you know, believe in this and you know, putting pressure on, on your administration. But um, we will be, uh, we're doing actually a six month uh, workshop, set of workshops that will you know, walk people through all these different things. And the reason I go have it uh, as six months is because every month there's, there's a webinar to talk through one aspect and then each week you would get a prompt to say, to, you have to practice these things, you know? This stuff doesn't come easy to people who haven't been doing it all their lives. And the reality is we all live in this structural racism, what I call the sea of white supremacy. And, you know, it's it's so important that we understand that because every, and I, James, you had mentioned our social scientists, <clears throat> you know, I'm a political scientist. We've been taught, we've been on Facebook and Twitter talking about this stuff. We, we've been doing this work, but the problem is it's marginalized within our discipline. And so I want to take the, you know, take charge to a certain extent and say, look, race is at the center of everything in this country, <laughs> you know. If you look at all the economic structures, you know, uh, pay, you know, I mean, it, 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 
I was talking to a neighbor the other day and, you know, she was asking me, you know, a white neighbor, what can I do? And I said, look around you. This, you know, I'm one of the very few people in this neighborhood who is a person of color, uh, let alone a black person. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you have to pay attention to. You have to pay attention to what's going on in your, on your own campus. You have to pay attention to what's happening to both women and minorities. I hate to use the word minorities because we're not the minority, but you know, what is happening around you? Pay attention and then uh, figure out what's the best way to approach it. But um, so yes, we have workshops uh, that we're going to be doing and we really want people to come in, like bring your whole campus community to this. And, you know, the nice thing about it is we're going to have space for people who don't feel comfortable asking questions, you know, in front of everybody else. We will we'll have space for you to come and ask any questions you want if you so you can feel comfortable doing that. And so, yeah, so please uh, yeah, check in with us and we'll be happy to uh, get that going. But I wanna come back to our questions and, um, you know, I think we've kind of uh, gone through the, how, how uh, what type of sustaining actions university administration should take. Uh, I think that James and Kim covered that, but, um, you know, one of the issues that I raised at the beginning, for those of you who weren't there, I talked about the situation at Santa Clara where the campus security came in. And, and I'd love to get your comments, James and Kim, and I'll start with Kim first this time. You know, how can we help for, with, you know, how do we make people feel secure on a campus? How do we make them feel like they, they are welcome, really? Yeah, and particularly this has been an issue for, for such a long, long time uh, when we have predominant, particularly as you, you gave the statistics again on Santa Clara, how do you do that um, when, when the percentages are so, so low that people can, can feel comfortable? Um, you know, one, it's beyond just training. It's not just a matter of talking to campus police or campus security. Um, it's, it's really doing um, role-playing exercises and the like on a regular basis and, and holding them accountable for uh, treating people with real humanity uh, and kindness and respect in every regard. And, you know, when, when you uh, shared the story with me um, that I had I, I'd heard of, but I hadn't read the full story yet, it immediately reminded me of Skip Gates at Harvard mm -hmm. uh, with what happened with Skip a few years ago as well in his own home. And, um, you know, this is not abnormal uh, in any way. And so the burden is really on people who look like me uh, and sound like me. It's on, it's my burden to take. It's all of our burden to take to ensure that we're creating an environment um, that is that is set up for the demography of where we are today and where we're going. I mentioned before, just on the age um, generations, you know, kind of the, the folks who came of age in the 20th century and, and the folks that are coming of age in this century. But we already know, um, if you haven't read Bill uh, Fry's work on American demography, I really recommend it, F-R-E-Y. Uh, he's out of my former employer, the Brookings Institution, too, but he's doing some really good work on demography of showing you where the United States is going. And to your point of not liking to word, use the word minority, um, Terry, you're absolutely right, because um, minority is becoming majority very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, for, and I'm, I'm going to speak exceedingly candidly and unplanned here, um, you know, to say, for, for a lot of white people, it's understanding and really recognizing your own biases, both conscious and unconscious, of where you stand. You know, all of us, it, it comes from the cave people. We all have bias as a, as a protective shield to keep, you know, our cave and our people safe and, and be able to hunt and gather. But when those biases are not allowing you to see people who they are and meet them where they are, 
we've got enormous, enormous work to do. And so if there's some, you know, all you have to do is uh, go into good old Dr. Google and go in for uh, resources for white people on racial equity and justice. And you could essentially be working on two graduate degrees of reading, listening, watching over the next several months. And so I highly urge uh, lifelong learning and self-education here to, to really better understand how structural racism is laid out, not just our justice system, but our society as a whole. So to your first point of, of how we can do this, I use a lot of times the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule. And I say that again, as a cisgendered white woman in a leadership role here at age 50, um, because I think I grew up you know, with the golden rule of the idea, treat people the way you wish to be treated. But James doesn't want to be treated the way that I'm treated. Uh, Terry doesn't want to be treated the way that I'm treated. I have to, I'm currently, you know, wearing work clothes on the top and flip-flops on the bottom because it's about 100 degrees <laughs> here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, uh, you know, but you may not want to be in flip-flop, James. I mean, you've got that natty uh, bow tie on and you wouldn't be caught dead in flip-flops with that bow tie. So meeting people where they are is much more about the platinum rule. It's treating people the way they wish to be treated. That requires listening. It's beyond empathy, as Terry said before. It's about um, asking questions, listening, and, and taking that in. So we are meeting people where they are and allowing them to be their authentic selves. Um, but I would furthermore say, we've got to get out of um, any university or college setting where the numbers are that poor for faculty, staff, and students, where we're, we're not even in a minority situation, we're, we're barely on the grid of being able to actually be representative of our societies and our zip codes and our geographies. So I'd say, number one, let's make sure we're creating the institutions that we say in our mission, vision, and value statements we're looking for, and that we're representative of those. And that's gonna require more work. I'll give you one good example of it. At AUW, we've been giving out fellowships uh, to women and women of color for more than 100 years, American fellowships and international fellowships. And we deliberately, deliberately, dramatically increased the amounts of grants um, for graduate and doctoral work to women of color. We're now at about 65%. Um, by the way, for those of you who are thinking about going back to school, we give away about $4.5 million a year. We're one of the largest grantees to women in the country. Um, but we are deliberate in making sure we're playing our role in changing the way the academy looks and ensuring that we're pushing more people into the tenure pipeline uh, that can make up the world that we want to see. And I'll pause there. Thanks so much, Kim. James, do you want to jump in on the issue of creating sure. a more secure space? Sure. I, I'm a counselor by training, so much of my delivery and, and my strategy is driven around counseling. And something that, you know, in counseling, we say we can help, we can teach people empathy. Uh, and if we can't, we, we escort them out of the program. Uh, uh, and there's, there's a series of classes and, and so, you know, I married my high school sweetheart and uh, I've known her since I was in the sixth grade. And so we used to write love letters and uh, we didn't spell love, L-O-V-E, we spelled it L-U-V. And so uh, it's a framework that I use when I used to teach my PhD and master's students is, uh, you know, to be empathetic, you first have to learn how to listen. Uh, we got a lot of people in this space that they just don't listen and they say they listening they're quick to ask another question rather than the process so listening in counseling we sometimes you know people are uncomfortable with silence but you have to listen when people are hurting you have to listen oh you're not going to be in business as a counselor 
the first thing and the second thing is understand you listen to understand right and and in this space so many people say i just need to get more information so i can understand I, you know people get fatigued it's almost like nathan mccall in his book it makes me want to holler what is it that you don't understand about george floyd what happened to him what does it you know we we don't need to go to the lynching museum down in in alabama to understand our historical challenge in this country and so listen understand and validate that's the v and you validate not by just yeah i hear you validation is i'm responding i'm responding into action so what we try to do you know before the university because you know at the end of the day i have to say uh, i've read a lot of literature about chief diversity officers they don't work and, and i understand that so i understand the critique uh oftentimes they don't work it's for a number of things it's how the university view the chief diversity officer and it's how the chief diversity officer view the work if you do this work and you expect you gonna get all the money that you want I tell everybody, you don't want to choose this job. You're going to have to be resourceful and creative in this work. So what we started with, because I can't control faculty, they won't give me that line. Uh, but if you give it to me, I promise you I'll change it. But if you give me the lines, we can do something. But at the end of the day, we hire people for these positions and they have a heightened level of vulnerability. And what they do is get in line to beg. And so the reality of it is my strategy not to say it's the best strategy, I've always been resourceful with re, uh, uh, resources and bringing resources. Because the first thing, I, if I talk to my peers around the country, they say, I'm the CDO, but I don't have no staff, I don't have no administrative assistance, I don't have no budget. That's what I hear all around the country, right? And some people look at me with envy and say, oh man, you got this robust budget. It's all relative when you think about it's Ohio State. But if you tell me, ask me, how much have you raised? How much have you brought in? That allows you what I've learned in this work. If you don't embarrass a university and you don't ask them for money, you can almost do whatever you want to. And I learned that from growing up in the South from my own dad. He believed in democracy. And he said, if you take my money, you have to get my opinion. So the reality of what I would say, what we have done, and we did it when I was associate provost, the diversity scholarship that I highlighted, we have 1,500, nearly 1,500 students that we fund. And we took race out of it and gender and what you believe. We took, it's first and foremost, is about merit, academic merit. And the second thing is social justice and diversity leadership, right? Because from at the time, I got the vice provost to understand what is the mission of a college education? Let's go at the core of it. It's a public good. It makes our democracy better, right? We should be thinking about education, educating people, because you go back why the Moral Act, you look at it, is citizenship, right? We're educating for citizenship to make our democracy better, right? Well, we have, we have malpractice in K-12, which is my background, where we educate people where they don't, ever have a person of color in some places they don't even have a woman uh, as a teacher we have miseducated so many of our young people and then they come to this big institution where everybody think marxism is promoted left-leaning and all those things i read all that stuff online but i just don't talk about it so here's the opportunity to talk about it 
But nevertheless, we get 4,000 to 7,000 applications. Let me hear me out. 4,000 to 7,000 applications for 400 to 450 slots. And what we did, we convinced them, right? Now, when people look at the quality metrics, 80% of these students are in honors and scholars. The four-year, the five-year, the six-year graduation rates higher than the university average. Guess what? Everything that we had planned, even though it was tension when we did it, even within the leadership, is that this year's SGA president, the first black woman in the history of our university SGA president, come from this program. And the vice president, another person of color, came from this program too because they got 1,500 people who can vote for them, who think similar than them. They look different. They come from different parts of the world. Some are atheists, some are Christians, some are Republicans, some are Democrats. They're everything. But what they share in common is excellence, academic excellence, and they share that the world needs people to make it better. Humanitarian causes. So you could be a 34 on the ACT, but you ain't doing nothing to make the world better, and you can look just like me your chances of getting the scholarship is going to probably be slim to none. And the reality of it is what? The students that were probably out there protesting, because I've seen them, I said, oh my gosh, I hope they're safe. Those are those students. And they're white, they're black, they're everything. So we started with the students because we believe if you give people, smart people, the tools and you build an apparatus around them, they will transform the world. And the example, the test bed was, students helped created my office. Because guess what? Some of the adults didn't have the courage, right? Which who still don't have the courage. If tenure professors don't have courage now, and I always tell you, if you didn't have courage before you got tenure, you ain't gonna have courage when you get tenure. So the reality of it is what we do is we try to convey unconditionally that we want to help you reach your dreams and aspirations. So what people don't know, if you look at my undergraduate population that we serve in my office, it's bigger than most HBCUs, most minority serving institutions, nearly 5,000 undergraduate students. That doesn't count the graduate and professional students that we have some reach to. I believe if I build and create the right apparatus and I build opportunities where they can expand their imagination and that they can go in any sector of the world, I believe our students, whether they're white or black or whatever background they come in, they will go in and take the same ethos that we help preserve, the reason why they got the scholarship, and they will be begin to transform the realities in all sectors. In turn, I believe part of what we're trying to do is not just create a groundswell at the institution, but we're trying to change the world. And so uh, we wrote a, I wrote an open letter to corporate America, mm -hmm. to Fortune 1000 CEOs and, and board uh, members. And I, told, and I basically said, let's put your money where your mouth is. Let's raise a trillion dollars. And one reporter said, James, you weren't thinking small. I said, because it's been a problem and it takes the great person who my building named after, who the most beloved, the highest award in the CDO world 
is named after Frank Hale, and someone mentioned Frank Hale. And then I cited that, and anybody who knows Frank Hale, who some refer to as the father of diversity in higher education, because in the 80s, Ohio State was number one for black PhDs, and we dominated for a decade because of Frank Hale. And Frank Hale helped literally take students, over 4,000 students, and most of them came for HBCUs. And now they're the presidents, they, you know, they, they went in various sectors of our society. He said, commitment without cash is counterfeit. So don't tell me you care about it if you ain't put no money where your mouth is. So JP Morgan Chase, they gave us the largest corporate gift in the history of our office, and they've been a great friend of the Office of Diversity because they're looking for ways to transform how they go about their business. And so they literally have a person who's assigned to our office who spend sometimes two or three weeks at a time with office hours. Because one thing, if you want people of color, you got to do like baseball players. Baseball players hit the ball where no one is. If you want diversity, that's why they're going to go to Howard University and Spelman and those kind of, because they want diversity. But we help them do a cognitive reframe. We did a cognitive reframe with them and said, do you realize how many students we have at this camp on this campus? Do you realize the profile of this scholarship? I said 80% in honors and scholars. So part of inviting, we're slowly changing how people think about diversity and inclusion. Because when you say diversity inclusion, people think you lowering the bar. Lowering the bar, right? I'm gonna say that again, lowering the bar. But when I talk about the profile of my students, they look in there and say, whoa, we didn't know this, right? And guess what? In our storied history, we've had eight Rhodes Scholars at Ohio State. We can't count the first four because the first three, I think, were men, white men, because women and people of color couldn't be Rhodes Scholars in the early days. Three of the last Rhodes Scholars are people of color, and two out of the last three, we got one in Oxford. We got two at Oxford now but two out of the last three come out of our office. And I won't let nobody take it away from us because we developed them, we encouraged them, and not only that, they're doing really well. So part of it is you have to help change faculty mentality, what's good and what's not good. Uh, and it's a slow process and you get fatigue. Compassion fatigue is real in this work. But when mamas and daddies drop their kids off, Regardless of where they're from, whether they're from a rural area, urban area, whether they're white or black, I'm going to tell you a quick story and I'm going to shut my mouth. I had a dean, I had a student, we had a full ride, she was white, and she wants to be an urban educator. And she couldn't get into one of our top education programs because you would have thought some of these education programs harder to get in than physics and some of the psychology programs because they the ratios. She couldn't get in and she was distraught because she wants to be an urban educator. Come on, we've been looking for talented people in urban schools, but she couldn't get in one of our programs. So I reached out to the dean at that time because I am a distinguished professor and I said, I do have a little cachet around here. Let me reach out and say, this doesn't look good. And so when I reached out to her and, and I never told the dean what the person looked like because I didn't think it was important to say she was white. She's one of my students. And that's all you need to know. She's one of my students. When she came back and the, and the faculty said, well, she didn't use the right vernacular. Come on, do you know how the vernacular change in diversity 
all the time, and now you say this person is not worthy because they didn't come in already in package? Come on, if someone helped me to everything I did in life, there's no way I would be here. Thank goodness I was in process and constantly developed and still developing, by the way. So anyway, the dean, I said, well, this student got a full ride. Do you know how many applications we get? You can't be a Rudy Pooh to get this scholarship. Well, anyway, she let her, she got in the program and her mom and, and everybody. But what I'm saying, we have to not just create boutiques for people of color. We have to figure out ways to transform the whole entire campus. Because I have a 27,000 square building named after a black person. And I've created, to some degree, a boutique for people. While the rest of the campus, they still get to come in and leave the same way they were when they were in that neighborhood. So I think in the diversity space, uh, you have to create an inviting space for everyone. And when you say diversity and inclusion, people, all affinity groups want to say, well, you just care about black people. You just care about this person. No, we got to care about everybody if we want to create the groundswell that we all desire. Thank you for indulging me. Uh, it, you, you took us all to church, James. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, that was wonderful. Um, and I, we're going to be doing this. I, I'm going to bring, I have to pull you into what we're doing here. So um, thank you so much for all of that, because it's very important. And, you know, one of the things I want to add to that is that you, uh, Kim mentioned the mentor issue. Um, you know, that's something that I talk about a lot because I, you know, I would not be where I am today if it weren't for um, the mentor. And, and as James said, sponsors, people who said, Terry, apply for this position. Or, you know, I, I always tell the story about how I became a vice provost at UT Austin, of all places. You know, I was the first black woman to become a, a vice provost at, at UT Austin. And, you know, basically I got a call one, yeah, there was a lot that happened before that, but, you know, I got a call one day and, you know, to go to the provost's office. And, you know, I always tell people, I look in the, at the floor to see um, where the, the dent is because my jaw hit it. You know, they off, they just offered me the, the job of vice provost. and you know, they had a, that administration, you know, was looking for, you know, leaders, you know, like me who could step in and take on these positions. And that's what it takes, people, is the administration has to decide they want these people in these positions and to offer them that. And, and if, you know, if they aren't ready, give them the, the training they need and so on. So I know we're already a little past 1030. I hope Kim, you can stick and James, you can stick with us for, for longer um, because I know there's, I just want to get to this one last question and, and that's the impact of COVID. And we've already said, I think that um, we're hopeful. I mean, but we're also seeing this impact of COVID. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I put a little note in the chat about how this is negatively impacting women. Um, the situation of being at home with the children, you know, and so on. And we, we, there's studies out there that show women's research has declined dramatically uh, during the COVID crisis. So um, I, I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit about that um, and, you know, just give us some of your thoughts around that. Kim, I'll let you start this time. Yeah, it's, um, you know, again, it's, um, it's all being revealed through this pandemic of where the inequities are. And as far as we've come, you know, we're still out of a like a Virginia Slims uh, commercial, uh, you've come a long way, baby, from the 1970s here rather than where we should be. You know, I, we've been doing a lot of work um, at AUW in STEM, and for STEM researchers, if you're uh, a woman in STEM, 
you tend to be partnered or married to a person who's also in STEM, but males in STEM are not, right? And so if you're a researcher in STEM right now, you're also taking care of minor children or elder care. Uh, there's less of a divide of the, of the home care. You may not even be able to get access to your lab, obviously. Um, so our fellows right now, our American fellows and uh, international fellows are calling us around the clock uh, seeking guidance on how to move forward with, you know, not only their academic work, but their fellowship. We're obviously giving them an incredibly long uh, leash, uh, infinity-wise, to allow them to complete their work. Um, but again, these are issues why, you know, um, I think this is such an opportunity for higher education to deal with that which they've discussed for decades, um, to really improve the policies and practices around flexible schedules. I mean, think about this. You, if you're a woman and you attain your PhD, you basically have seven, you know, depending on your discipline, let's just call it roughly seven years to publish or perish. Those are also prime family making years. So for women, you're at a disadvantage. Are you going to be able to publish or perish in that time frame, or are you not? And who created this seven years uh, publish or perish? Anyhow, it was created at a time really for men and by men. And so have we actually evaluated what it is to go tenure track today? And that's just an example. I mean, you could say the same thing in accounting firms and law firms in terms of making partner and where's the access level so we have to stop leading with our words and we actually have to create the changes around parental leave um, flexibility and schedules and childcare practices if we're, we're going to and make some improvements here I'm going to say one more thing because it really relates to what James was saying before I led over the last uh, 18 months focus groups in eight different cities around the country with just recent graduates, undergraduates, um, up to those that were in their first or second job. So roughly 20 year olds to 39 year olds. And this is where I'm heartened in that, you know, this generation, um, you know, remember folks, millennials are turning 40. So they're no longer our college students. It turns out time moves on and we got to uh, march on with it. Uh, but what was remarkable about Gen Z and millennials in these conversations, one, you know, I represent a W of women, but we're not just women, we're non-binary individuals, men that care about inclusion, diversity, and equity issues. Um, and what we really found from this is women don't just want to sit with women. They're tired of that. They saw what their grandmothers and aunties did to try and move uh, the Voting Rights Act forward, Civil Rights Act forward, uh, the suffrage movement, uh, Equal Pay Act, et cetera. And they know that we have to actually sit with men at the table too. This is exactly what James was saying of backgrounds of diversity matter when you're bringing people into DEI work, uh, whether they're studying it academically or just trying to create a more inclusive society. And so, you know, with that, we, I would also say this is uh, the millennial and Gen Z and now soon to be post Gen Z generations have grown up not with don't ask, don't tell. They've grown up with embracing LGBTQIA communities, with really understanding why Black Lives Matter is so critical and never saying all lives matter. They really understand much more so generationally compared to millennials and, or excuse me, to Gen X and to baby boomers. And so I would say I'm heartened because I will, I will say this last. Um, admissions right now, it was always a shell game. Admissions has become tougher and tougher, um, you know, with the common application. We all know that as, as esteemed as the Ohio State University is, you're competing with the Ivy Leagues, you're competing with other flagship institutions, you know, in this nation and around the world too. And right now, because we're in a movement, not a moment, because COVID-19 has put such a spotlight on all of these inequities, you know, just like consumers are going to vote with their pocketbook um, or leave 
um, the payroll, you're going to see students, faculty, and staff, I think, all the more so, so demand change in higher education, or they'll just go uh, with another institution. So Santa Clara, I'm glad the president responded so quickly, but there's a lot of work to be done there to make sure you can build trust. And I would say that path forward in COVID is allowing us to kind of examine all of those policies and practices. So we're creating an environment again that's not in black and white, but is in technicolor to meet the demography of today. And there's easy ways to get around that. You know, one, one silly thing I could do, just a little jokingly, we used to have the most archaic dress code when I came to AUW. And I admitted I'm wearing flip-flops right now. COVID has said dress codes be damned, right? You dress for your day. I threw it out. The dress code is out. It is no longer going to be even a part of our employee handbook because it's something from a, a prior time. And enough. Let, let's move forward in a way that we can be inclusive for all. And I think COVID, you know, we've got a triple whammy right now of an ongoing pandemic the worst job market we've seen in 90 plus years, record high unemployment rates, um, and a national reckoning on structural racism. Uh, we haven't even talked about the hashtag MeToo movement. It's in its third year of all the more work we can do here. That's a triple whammy that can move us to actionable and sustained change. And I'm on board and I can tell you I know uh, the post-Gen Z, Gen Z and millennial and, and many, many in Gen X and baby boomers are ready to move forward too. But this is our future and it's right in our face. Absolutely. James, you get the last word. Sure. I, well, thank you. And, and I would say that the pandemic, all it did was show us who we really are. Mm -hmm. uh, either you're going to, you know, and some people like to lean on the pandemic and say that's why we might have some of the challenges. But, you know, strong leadership prepares for the moment. And some of the things that we've been doing, and, and I can say I was um, I didn't want to fatigue the staff, but I, I had to push the staff so we could get ahead of the curve because I serve some of the most vulnerable students on our campus. Um, and so vulnerability tends to hit, impact the most vulnerable first. And so what we tried to do, we did a survey for the, uh, thanks to the wonderful leaders that we have in the organization. We surveyed our students, we pivot. And then we provided specific recommendations. You know, at the time, everybody was just kind of floundering. You know, everybody was trying to, you know, you know, to me, that's when we really need leadership. At this moment, we need strong leaders to do something bold right now. And I, I would say the COVID, what it's done for us as an institution, as more specifically for my office, things that we never would have thought about in terms of the how to utilize technology, um, we just never would have tried. And I think we have some antiquated policies. I used to be a program director at the National Science Foundation. And some of my colleagues, they telework three days a week. They never came in office. I mean, I'm kind of old school. I never telework. I go in the office regardless. But 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 I and that's primarily because I know nobody's gonna be there and I can get some work done. But but nevertheless there's some things out of COVID that I don't think we'll ever go back to because I don't think it provided the level of efficiency and effectiveness. And I can say our summer programs, some people were closing summer programs at institutions of higher learning. The most vulnerable were most impacted. I told them this is mission critical work and we continued our summer programs in a way that I don't know, that's probably one of my greatest feats in my career 
because I didn't know how we were going to do it. But I was just trying to be a leader and trying to say, we're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. And, and the staff said it just went exceptionally well. The other thing around COVID, we have to do, deal with self-care because compassion fatigue is real. Because when you get in this diversity work, you care about it so much. And not only that, I realized that my staff were affected tremendously. So now we have meetings every two weeks. I meet with all the staff. I have more meetings than I want because I know I'm only as good as my human capital. My human capital produces financial capital. It creates equity in students. And so I had to constantly think about how we brought in someone to do yoga with us from afar because people were afraid. They wouldn't go outside. So we have to really think in an imaginative way. And I can say some of my best creativity has occurred as a result of crisis. And I think right now the school year started and I can smile because we're not fumbling. We're, we're ready to go for the year when the university was saying planning for only a semester. And now we got to plan for another semester. And I was saying consistently since March, we're planning for the whole year because all the being a behavioral scientist, all the evidence suggested this is going to be a year. We might at best, we might get a vaccine in February at best. And so what I would say, the people need leadership. And in fact, as a result of Mr. Blake, I told the team I got to send something out because people are hurting. People are hurting and they need good leadership. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys have been amazing today. Thank you to everybody who's hung with us. Um, this has been an amazing discussion and we're definitely gonna have to have a follow-up because we barely scratched the surface of the questions. But um, yes, I just wanna say to everybody, um, please stay safe, uh, take care of yourselves, uh, You know, do whatever you need to do to um, stay sane in these crazy times. And we will be, like I said, uh, we'll be doing some follow-up and uh, watch your email. And uh, as I noted in the chat, if you want to uh, connect with us, um, it's Tarrant, T-A-R-R-A-N-T at higheredleads.com. You can contact me directly, tgivens at higheredleads.com. We put some links for Kim and James. Um, and so please uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us and have a wonderful rest of your day, everybody. Take care. Bye.